Hello, welcome to the January episode of Chattering with ISFM. I'm Natalie Dalgray, Head of ISFM and host of this month's podcast. First up this month, I'm speaking with Dr. Harima Lopez Atapa, who's been involved in the research work investigating the feline coronavirus infection that's led to the outbreak of FIP in Cyprus. We're also featuring our monthly JFMS Clinical Spotlight interview. This month, the focus is on the diagnosis of invasive fungal infections. I'm speaking with Professor Vanessa Bars on the first of her two articles on this subject. We'll be back again in a few months talking with Vanessa about the treatment of these infections, but this month we're going to be focusing on the diagnosis. How did you first hear about the FIP outbreak that was occurring in Cyprus? Yeah, I was actually writing my thesis back then in January, and uh, I was actually in Cyprus at the time, and we've set up a, a small laboratory in Cyprus. The small laboratory was working the past two years. And it was this is January, we started receiving a lot of fluids, a lot of CSF, a lot of cuts with the skies. So yeah, actually I was there when everything unfolded front of our eyes and we picked it up via a clinical pathology route. So for those of the audience like me who aren't virologists, what can you say is different about the strain of, of feline coronavirus? I was just, obviously, of course, as we know, when it comes to feline in Coronavirus of two biotypes, the enteric version, as well as the feline-infectious uh, peritonitis. Now, what happens with feline-infectious peritonitis, there's a random event inside the cut that is causing a single base mutation, typically, in the spike of the enteric version, and the feline-infectious peritonitis version of the virus appears that is gaining functionality and increasing virulence. However, it loses this ability to transmit. So nature managed to balance, it becomes more pathogenic, but it's not transmissible anymore. What happened in this case of FCOP23 is that not only we have uh, a gain of functionality, increased virulence, however, also had an increased transmissibility. But it was not the case with the previous FIPV viruses. So that's why this outbreak started, because this mutation also became transmissible. These sort of changes really then are indicating it's the increased transmittability that's really leading to the increased FIP cases, is that right? Absolutely, yes. And here, what we have, we don't have that just a single nucleotide, single base mutation. In this case, we have the entire insertion of the spike protein from endoc anthropic canon coronaviruses. So the entire spike protein from a canon coronavirus, in that case, a very nasty canon coronavirus, came and was inserted in the feline coronavirus that led to this new FCOV23 virus. And so somehow we didn't have just a simple uh, recombination of just one pair bears, but the entire spike protein uh, of the dog got inserted to the feline coronavirus, and that gave them that transmissibility. And again, pantropic coronavirus has been circulating in Greece and presumably Balkan and the whole Middle East uh, for a few decades and caused a very nasty disease. And pantropic means that it was in many cells and caused much more severe disease in dogs. So most likely that gave a lot of properties and transmissibility to the new virus that uh, emerged in Cyprus. Gosh, and so potentially this is something that could happen again in these countries where the pantropic canine virus is? Potentially, yes. And maybe potentially this is what happened to that historic outbreak that was reported in Greece a few decades ago, was never published. Uh, so potentially there was something to do with uh, this kind of pantropic virus. In this case, however, it's something beyond that. Uh, the virus is very stable, pretty much all the cases 
of FIP has the same virus from January to today. Of course, we do see some, we do see some cases of, of FIP with the classic virus, but the mass majority of them is this new FCOV-23. What we've seen is not necessarily a benefit of the coronavirus outbreak that we've experienced in the human side of things. Um, it's had a benefit for our FIP cases in the sense that we've now got a lot more availability and use of antivirals for our cats. Mm -hmm. um, but also on the people side of things, it's led to a massive uh, rise in the development of vaccines. Um, do you think we're going to see the same for, for our feline cases? Yeah. Another positive thing of this devastating outbreak is that at the moment there's a huge uh, media attention to FIP and the cat population, and also that sparked the interest. And obviously because it's also coronavirus, it spiked the interest even more. So at the moment there is a lot of discussion from some of the big pharmaceutical companies to potentially manufacture a new vaccine for FIP. As there's already one that's already available, but it's not very effective. And I think also your society does not suggest to use that vaccine. So we need a new, much more effective vaccine uh, for our cuts. So potentially this is something that can happen in the future. This echoes so well what has happened with the human COVID-19 pandemic. Initially it was no vaccine. Suddenly there is plethora of vaccine. And now that accelerated the mRNA vaccines were actually have brought a revolution in all vaccinology, not only uh, for SARS-CoV-19. In terms of this sort of event and this change that's increasing the risk of transmissibility, is there any indication that we maybe should be doing something different to try and prevent cats from becoming exposed to this strain compared to our normal preventative measures? Is it still an oral fecal transmission? Usually we are suspecting, obviously coronavirus is that's it with interest naturally, and this is what we suspect is happening also with COVID-23. Again, we need to do more experiments, we need to culture the virus, and uh, obviously do some more epidemiological work to answer that question. But the fact that the same virus is present throughout the island or every month indicates that this is the most likely cause, way of transmission. Currently, there is a suspected case in the Netherlands, and the, the very interesting thing is that the cat was imported to Netherlands in March from Cyprus. It has only developed clinical signs now. So this is something very strange, having such a long incubation period of six months. So again, this is something very interesting. It's something very new, haven't published yet. And just not to hear it here in this podcast is that at the moment we're wishing cycles of an increase of this called dry forms of FIP. We see way more now. So obviously the epidemiological changes, the immune response changes, also the, the way that the cases are presented is changing. So. That's really concerning in the sense that we might have quite a long tail, especially with cats that may have been transported out of Cyprus into other countries where maybe there isn't that awareness yet. So <laughs> hopefully we'll raise a bit more awareness through doing this podcast yes. as well. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so much. And now I'm speaking with Professor Vanessa Bars on invasive fungal infections, anoa mycoses and cats, the diagnostic approach. I was wondering what you would advise we do as a general sort of baseline workup in cases where we're potentially suspecting an invasive fungal infection. Yeah, look, I think that's a good case for doing basic CBC biochem and uh, retrovirus testing, which I always do for sick cats to just know if they've got anything or FELD. It doesn't mean that you can't treat them, but it's always good to be informed because you might need to treat them for, for a little bit longer. And even with the CBC, even though there's not specific changes, sometimes there's little flags. 
And hyperprobilinemia is not just all about FIP. I know that's probably what most people commonly think of when they see a hyperglobulinemia in a cat, but it can be quite common in these invasive fungal infections as well. In fact, I think about 60% of cats with sclerodrocosis will have hyperglobulinemia. In some of the invasive aspergillosis, like cyanoorbital aspergillosis, it's quite common as well. So that can be a little flag. And of course, eosinophilia, don't just think allergy or parasites. It's not that common, uh, but when it occurs, I always... Um, think about fungi as well. You know, you think about fungal inflammation, you get fungal granulomas and they're full of monocytes and you can get activation of the vitamin D pathway there. So that can cause hypercalcemia. And that's been seen in things like dermatophytic pseudomycetoma, histoplasmosis, blastomycosis, things like that. I would start there and then I would move on to the fungal antigen or antibody tests. Cool. And I, how would you recommend we approach those discussions maybe with our local laboratory to find out what testing's available and what the advantages and disadvantages of the tests that they have? I think the first thing is to think about what's likely to occur in your area. And you're going to be thinking not only about where you're practicing, but also what kind of clinical signs your animal is presenting with. So anywhere in the world, if you've got a cat with nasal signs, uh, and you might want to think about ruling out cryptoclosis. And the great thing about cryptoclosis is that you can make a definitive diagnosis on a blood test, a non-invasive blood test, which is great. And then if you're practicing in the Midwestern, South Central or Southeast US, and you've got a cat that's got respiratory distress or tachypnea or dyspnea, you might be thinking about uh, doing a histoplasma antigen test on urine. But then if you're working in Arizona and you've got a cat with the same signs, you might think about doing serology testing for coccidioid mycosis. So that's first things to think about. And then the next thing would be to get on the phone and ask your lab to provide you with some data on what the prevalence, because they're the ones that are providing the tests and they should be able to let you know what they're seeing most commonly. But it's also good to ask them about what is the test that they're using and do they have any data on the efficacy of it. A lot of these tests have been published in terms of sensitivity and specificity has been investigated by feline researchers. So ask the lab to provide you with those references and that can really help you as a vet work out whether you've been used that test or not. And actually that's, I guess, another source of, of kind of monitoring data, isn't it? Looking at the lab What's being submitted, what's coming back positive, again, is another source for us looking at changes and spread over time. In terms of the workup, obviously advanced imaging then came up again, depending on presenting signs. And how how do you decide what modality to use? It depends on which part of the cat you're going to image. So what is the clinical presentation and also what modality you've got available to you. When it comes to choice between... CT and radiography. Look, if it's a if it's a cat with nasal signs, if I've got the option of doing a CT first off, that would be wonderful because obviously you can get really good information about the soft tissues as well as the bony structures without any problems of secret imposition of soft tissues and bone that might obscure the underlying pathology. So that's great. Uh, but you might not have the option of, of that. And in that situation, then plain radiography is a good place to start. Also, you want to think about what is the best return diagnostically for you and financially for your owner. 
And if it's a case that you know is going to be referred, then you might think about whether it it can just be done all uh, at once. If it's a cat that's got neurological signs and you're thinking about fungal infections, it might have upper respiratory signs as well. Obviously, in that situation, the modality that I really want to use is, is an MRI. But if in doubt... There's quite a lot of fungal infections that do have some abnormalities on chest X-rays, so it, it would never be a bad thing to take a chest X-ray. So, is there anything additional we need to mention to the lab when we're sending the fluid in for cytology? It's always good if you're suspecting a fungal infection just to let them know that it's one possibility because often for things like BAL, when they're doing cytology, they're going to be using Dipquick or other modified Romanowski type stains. And sometimes the fungal elements are negatively staining. So if it's something you've flagged, your pathologist might just spend a little bit more time looking at the sample. Mm-hmm. No, that makes sense. Brilliant. Oh, thank you for that. I think it's been really helpful to start to think about these kind of infections, how they might be increasing in prevalence and what we need to be thinking about to to diagnose them. So part two um, of our podcast with you is then going to be very much focusing on the treatment. So that will be coming for for people in the the next few months. But thank you very much for, for talking about the diagnosis with us today, Vanessa. Oh, that's my absolute pleasure. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for listening. If you're an ISFM member, don't forget you can access the full version of this podcast and all the other ISFM member benefits, including Congress recordings, monthly webinars, clinical club, the discussion forum, and much, much more at portal.icatcare.org. If you're looking for more free CPD from ISFM in February, do look out for our quarterly Cat Friendly Clinic webinar. We'll be back again next month with another episode. If you don't want to miss out, do make sure you've signed up to Chattering with ISFM on your preferred podcast platform. 